gospel and open to Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. We're going to begin this morning looking at verses 31 to 34. I warn you, and just let you know rather, that we're only going to look at verse 31 this morning. We're going to look at the whole thing. We're going to look at the rest of it next week. Uh, But we're really starting a whole series that's going to extend into chapter 19, which is talking about the journey to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus' journey all the way down to Jerusalem. Now he has been traveling to Jerusalem, but now this is the this is the they're really kicking it in at this point. You know, there are a lot of people who like Jesus. There aren't many people who dislike Jesus, uh, but there are not very many people who love Jesus. There's a difference in that. Uh, To love Jesus means to walk in His ways, to follow His commandments. Jesus said, if you love Me, you will keep My commandments. So there are a lot of people and a uh, a lot of folks will make a Jesus in their own image. They will take the things that they think uh, that Jesus should be like. They will create a Jesus, invent a Jesus. Um, Today, progressives, uh, in the old days, we used to call them liberals in the 1900s. Prior to that, we called them apostates or, uh, yeah. Anyway, but uh, progressives today like to invent Jesus. A nice Jesus whose only life mantra is to be nice, to be kind, Um, and uh, just to to do that. Certainly kindness is an aspect of Jesus, but there is more to it than just that, isn't there? Um, the current, one of the current uh, banners that this invented Jesus flies is love is love, right? Uh, to show you the fallacy of this thinking, if I were to give you a cup of water and you would say, where did this come from and so what does it matter water is water did i get it from the toilet what's the difference water is water drink it you see we have to understand that jesus the true jesus who we find in the word of god because he is the living word of god this jesus is indeed full of grace but He is also full of truth. Do you get that? Jesus is full of grace and full of truth. So we must worship, we must understand who the true Jesus is. Yes, there is grace, but there is much truth that needs to be given. This Jesus that liberals and progressives have invented is a Jesus who went to Jerusalem and was unfortunately killed. He was misunderstood. He wasn't uh, fully embraced. And, and uh, He is to be an example of us, to be a light and life to people and just being kind and, and nice. And certainly we should be those things. But this is the end-all, be-all of them. He was a good teacher, a good moral person. Uh, one who was more in tune with God than anyone else. But what we see here is this was no accident. When Jesus went to Jerusalem, it was intentional. It was His 
plan to go to Jerusalem, and it was a plan that was made from before the foundation of the world. You see, Jesus Christ is the incarnate Son of God. That, those are big words that simply means that He took on flesh. He was God. He has always been. He has always existed. And yet He took on flesh. He was on a mission. And this mission that He is on was to fulfill the law and to fulfill a covenant. You see, at the beginning, God created a man, a woman, And He said, I'm going to give you this garden. And the only thing that you have to do to live is you must obey. The covenant of works that God had given them. You you must obey. But yet, man did not obey. Just that one command. Don't eat of the tree. One command. And there was the disobedience. And so the covenant was broken. And so God, therefore, in response to this, Not that He was scrambling in a way, but God in response to this enacts a covenant of works in which this covenant covenant of grace, rather, the covenant of grace that God would make a way for His people indeed to be saved. That though the works were broken and sin had entered, God was now going to give grace to the people. But it wasn't just any kind of grace. It wasn't just a a grace that went all over everyone. It was a specific way. There had to be a way for the people to be saved. It would be through a Redeemer. Through the perfect sacrifice. It would actually be through, get this, it would be through one who would fulfill the covenant of works. So you could actually say this. You could say, we are saved by works. Okay, We are saved by grace through faith. We are saved by works. Not our work. That's the caveat. It's not our work. We are saved by His work. The the work that Adam should have done, Jesus does. In fulfilling and keeping the law. So our hope is in Him. That's why we just sang that. We sang, in Christ alone. Right? Our, our hope is found. We don't say, in myself alone, my hope is found. It's in Christ alone. Because He has fulfilled the covenant of works. But there was another covenant that was made. This was the covenant that God had made of redemption. It was not with man, but it was between, or among rather, the persons of the Trinity. Where in eternity past, God had declared that they would, they, the persons, that God, He would save His people and that the Father would send the Son. R.C. Sproul notes, central to the message of Jesus is the declaration that He was sent into the world by the Father. You see, the Son willingly goes into the world, obedient to the Father. The Father doesn't force Him to do this. You dads know what it's like to force your kids to do something, right? You know, go cut the grass. I said, go cut the grass. Alright, fine, I'll go do it. You know, and they're pushing the mower and they're angry. That was not Jesus. He willingly went and did this. He was willingly on His mission. 
You can read this in Philippians 2, where he willingly was born of a virgin, lived a perfect life, obeyed the law completely, and willingly laid down his life for his people and was raised on the third day. With this comes great glory in the fact that every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So you see here that the Son is sent into the world on mission. And it's this mission which He is completing this covenant of redemption where, they, where the, the plan is given to do this. And the plan doesn't come apart. This is not a plan B. This isn't a plan that is pieced together. You all remember, some of you will, some of you will not. But when I was a kid growing up, I watched this TV show, maybe even as a man I watched it also, called The A-Team. You guys remember The A-Team? They made a movie about it. I'm a purist. I refuse to watch a movie, a remake. But in this, it was, a, it was a, a group of Vietnam vets who were falsely accused, and they would go around and they would help people. And at the end of every single show, they would hatch this insane, crazy plan to get out of it. And the plan never worked. Never worked the way that it was supposed to. Very, very, uh, it, it, it reminds you of life. It never hatched. But you know what happened? It always worked out. It always worked out. And the guy at the end with his cigar in his mouth, Hannibal Smith, would say, I love it when a plan comes together. And the idea there was it never goes according to plan, but it always comes about. This is the complete opposite of what happens with Jesus. There was a specific, definite plan that Jesus was on And it worked out exactly the way He planned it. So there is nothing to fear. There there was nothing to... Oh, wow, look, this is going to go off the rails. No, Jesus is in total control. And what you're going to see and what you're going to find is it's not just that Jesus was going through and doing things Himself but rather it was also that there were all of these other players involved and they all worked to bring about the perfect plan of redemption. You will recall in Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that it said, When the days drew near to Him to be taken up, He set His face to go towards Jerusalem. Jesus has been on this journey to Jerusalem. And along the way, He has been teaching and healing and showing forth that He is the Messiah. But now we come to the sixth prediction of Jesus' death in Luke. I realize that in uh, the ESV, one of the, the the chapter, or not chapter, but paragraph dividers, says Jesus foretells His death a third time, but this is actually the sixth time that He does this. Uh, Luke 9.22, Luke 9.44, Luke 12.50, Luke 13.32-33, Luke 17.25, and then here. 
Let me share with you just two of them to express, express exactly what is taking place. In Luke 9, 21-22, Jesus says, and it, it says, He strictly charged and commanded them to tell no one, saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day, be raised again. In Luke 9, 43-45, it says, And all were astonished at the majesty of God, but while they were all marveling at everything He was doing, Jesus said to His disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they didn't understand what was going on. It says that they were concealed from Him. This is the first time in verses 31 to 34, the first time where Jesus states that he is going to actually be handed over to the Gentiles. There's a very specific reason that this is actually going to take place. We're going to look at that part next week. But for this week, I want us to see this theme, and it will be the theme next week as well. The theme is that the suffering, death, and resurrection of Jesus was no accident, but was the very direct, planned mission of God. This is what Jesus came to do. This is why He came. And there is a lot in here to be pulled out and understood why was this the plan? Why was this what was to take place? In the end, I hope that we will fully uh, know Christ in a deeper way because of this. That we will embrace Him. That we will trust Him even more. Notice what it says in verse 31. We see Jesus' prediction of the prophets. We're going to see later on how He speaks of His sufferings and of His death and resurrection and how the disciples don't hear. What does that mean that the disciples couldn't understand what was going on? We'll look at that. But the first thing that we're going to look at, and the only thing really we're going to look at today, was Jesus' prediction of the prophets. Verse 31. And taking the twelve... This is Jesus. He said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He then goes on, if I may just share with you this, he then goes on and explains in specific details, very itemized lists of things that are going to happen. He gives, I think, four things that are going to be done to him. It's actually in the passive voice where it speaks of uh, these things are going to happen. He's going to be delivered over. He's going to be mocked. He's going to be shamefully treated. He's going to be spit upon. And after that, a few more things. They're going to flog him. They're going to kill him. And on the third day, in the middle voice, he's going to rise again. He himself will do this. So he will overcome. And in the end, the disciples didn't understand these things. They can't figure out. It's not that they didn't understand the words that he said. It's that they couldn't figure out how in the world does this fit in God's plan. So notice what happens in the very beginning in verse 31. And taking the twelve. We see Jesus' prediction of the prophets. It states that in taking the twelve, he said to them. Notice first of all, he is planning to go to Jerusalem. That's where they are headed. 
They're headed up to Jerusalem. Jesus takes His disciples. This word takes is a very common word that is used in uh, the Gospel of Luke. It is a word that you know a little bit. You know the word para, right? The word para means to come alongside, like a paramedic. Okay, or a parachurch organization. It's an organization that comes alongside the church. This, this, this is a word that means to take, but it has the word para in the front. And so he takes them alongside him. So Jesus is taking these into close association with him. Another time this is used by Luke is found in Luke 9.28. It says, Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. That idea there of taking with him, that was a very close intimate time that Jesus had with the disciples because it was there that Jesus was transfigured and he was revealing things about himself to just these three and so this idea where Jesus is taking them this is a small intimate discussion this is something that he is sharing with them because he loves them he cares for them and he wants to instruct them on what is going on But notice, He takes the twelve and He says to them, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. This idea of going to Jerusalem was always the the pinnacle, the place where they were going to go. This is the city where all redemptive history will be accomplished. Now it's very interesting that if you note geographically where the disciples had been where Jesus had been he had been ministering up in Galilee and really he's making his way south going down to Jerusalem we we joke about that all the time when now when we lived up north uh, Julie and I would always say uh, I would say we're going down to North Carolina to visit your parents and for for her everywhere is up it doesn't matter where you're going where she would say we're going up and I would say you know what you're actually right because we are going we lived our elevation was like one okay I mean there there was the water we were like one foot above sea level okay but we would go and travel up to to Asheville, up into the mountains. So though we were going south, we would still go up. You know, the liberals used to come along, the progressives, the, uh, uh, the, you know, those who don't believe Scripture, they would say, see, Scripture's wrong. Jesus isn't going up to Jerusalem because geographically He's going down. See, it's wrong. Except for the fact that From Jericho, which you're going to see later in verse 35. Look down to verse 35. Okay, It says, and as he drew near Jericho, so this is the area where Jesus kind of is. He's near Jericho. From Jericho, Edwards notes that Jerusalem is about 20 miles from Jericho and it is 3,400 feet higher in elevation. So anytime you were going to Jerusalem, it didn't matter if you were coming from the south, east, west, or north, you were going up to Jerusalem. So here they were going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was so, such a very important place. 
This is where Messiah would be killed. Luke 13, 33-34 notes this. Nevertheless, I must go on my way. That's an important word, must. It is necessary. It is necessary for me to go on my way today and tomorrow and the following day. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. So he's saying that it, it, it must be in Jerusalem. The crucifixion can't occur in Jericho. The crucifixion can't occur in Galilee. It must be in Jerusalem. Now, the question comes up as to why Jerusalem? What is, I mean, other than God just ordained this and God said this, what is indeed special about Jerusalem? Well, it all goes back to God's covenant and sacrifice. God's covenant and sacrifice. You will recall from the very beginning, when man sinned, God demanded sacrifice. He demanded blood sacrifice. You recall Adam and Eve, they tried to sew the fig leaves together as the covering, but God said, no, that won't do. You can't do it on your own. I will take animal skins and give them to you in other words something died i will clothe you you must be clothed in the righteousness in which i am going to give you you must be clothed by the the sacrifice that i am going to give you so from the very beginning there is sacrifice there is this offering that is given there is this covering that must uh, come about Abel, you see that in the illustration there of Abel with Cain. Abel gives the right kind of sacrifice which was demanded by God. But then God calls Abraham. He calls him out of a pagan land when Abraham was indeed a pagan, worshiping other gods, but yet calls him to go to a place where he does not tell him. And Abraham believes God. God makes a promise to him, not based upon any merits of what Abraham has done, but he just makes a promise. He has to look to the sky. You see the stars. That's how many descendants you're going to have. And I'm going to give you a land. And he makes this, this promise. And in you, that in you, in you, Abraham, through you, all the nations will be blessed. There is this great blessing, this trifold blessing that is given to Abraham. And it's repeated several times, I think in Genesis 12, 15, 17 and in chapter 22 that test is given you recall abraham believes god throughout that trial he laughs at god at the promise and so does his wife but eventually they they have a child and it is through this one child that they believe everything is going to come and so god says I want you to take your son. And I want you to go to the land of Moriah. And when you go there, I want you to sacrifice your son. And just obey. So he loads him up, loads everything up, goes up here. And you will recall, even his son, Isaac says, Well, Dad, I mean, I, I see the fire, I see the rope, I see everything, but where's... Where's the lamb? And he says, God will provide a lamb. 
And you will recall that he goes there and he places his son and he is about to do it. And then the angel of the Lord, I believe that's Jesus, cries out to him, Stop! Now I know that you have obeyed and feared me. And he looks over and he sees a ram that's caught in the thicket and and he sacrifices him. He takes the place. That test is more for Abraham than God. It's not as if God was trying to figure out, you know, is Abraham really worthy about this? But he does this for the sake of Abraham, and Abraham now knows that indeed that God is indeed faithful. And we are told that in that land of Moriah, that it was later that Solomon built a temple right there. Notice in 2 Chronicles 3.1 that Solomon, it says, Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. And so here we see this, this great mountain, this great place in Jerusalem where sacrifice, the temple was built and where the sacrifices were given. So that is why Jesus, who would be the perfect sacrifice, would need to go to Jerusalem. Because through the sacrifices of the Levites and through all of the the sacrifices that would come, if Jesus indeed was to die once for all for the sin of all, He would be in Jerusalem. Truly, He was being led as a sheep to its slaughter. The only difference in this is that He was willingly going. He wasn't somehow being tricked or lured into going into Jerusalem. He was willingly going because of the One who is in control. This is His plan. So Jesus is pulling aside the disciples and specifically showing them what is about to occur. He's seeking to prepare them as He is going to be leaving them. But He wants them to know that everything that was being done was not going to be an accident. After all, notice that it says at the end of verse 31 that everything will be accomplished. He doesn't say He hopes it will be accomplished. He says it will be accomplished. This will be the height of redemptive history. So everything written about the Son of Man and the prophets is going to be accomplished. Now notice there what He says. He refers to Himself once again as the Son of Man. And we've mentioned this numerous times, but let's go a little bit more into it. When He calls Himself, this is the self-designated term that Jesus gives for Himself. Son of Man. This isn't just a a, a nickname that He gives Himself. um, But this is actually a term that goes back to the Old Testament. It goes back to Daniel chapter 7. And really until, not even this time, but until later on in His life. You're going to see a little bit later when He is in Jerusalem. Then you're going to see the culmination of the, the true manifestation of what this term actually means. See, in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man, this idea is, is that Jesus, or there would be one who would come, who came to the Ancient of Days, it says, and He was presented before Him, and to Him the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, 
And His kingdom will be one that will not be destroyed. So when we're talking here about the Son of Man, we're talking about one who has great power, who has great glory, who has great authority, who will have the people of all the worlds coming to bow down and worship Him and to serve Him. And that His kingdom will have no end. And yet, He's going to die. That, that, that doesn't seem to make sense. And the disciples are confused about this. But Jesus wants them to understand this. Jesus uses this title of Himself several times. For instance, in Luke chapter 5, He uses this, that the Son of Man, He says this, the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins on earth. And so he, 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 shows his, he shows a little bit about the flavor of what that phrase means. But he's going to give it in a greater sense. Well, we see this when he uses it in Luke chapter 21. In Luke chapter 21, if you want to turn there, verses 25 to 28, it says, Before the betrayal of Jesus, He is teaching His disciples what He's going to do. And it is here that He takes it a little step farther. It's kind of like putting a puzzle together, and you're, you, you, look at the, you look at the box, and then you're looking at the framework that you have, and you're like, I'm not seeing it yet. But the more pieces that you put in, you're saying, oh, it... it Oh, I'm starting to see it now. It's starting to become a little clearer now. And so Jesus, as He's, he's like unfolding this, this phrase of the Son of Man, it goes from forgiving of sins to he's, he's going to die, but then He's going to give more. In chapter 21 of in Luke 28 to 20, 25 to 28, He says, and there will be signs in the sun and moon and stars and on the earth, distress of nations and perplexity because of the roaring of the seas and waves, people fainting with fear, with the foreboding of what is to come on the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with great power and great glory. And he tells them, now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. You see, what is he telling them? Don't get preoccupied with all the things that are going around you. Look for the Son of Man. He is going to come. So look for Him. In His trial... A little bit later, that was in chapter 21. In chapter 22, verses 66 to 77, just a page over probably in your Bible. He says, When the day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both the chief priests and the scribes, and they led him away to their council. And they said, If you are the Christ, that word Christ is the word Messiah, okay? If you are the Messiah, Then tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, 
the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they said to him, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. And then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. And it was there they would turn him over to the Gentiles. But when you look at this, what do you see? You see that he says, from this time on, I am at the power. I am at the, the right hand of God. I am seated. That, that's the right hand symbolized the, the, the side the, of, of power and authority. That's why the disciples had asked one to sit on his right and one to sit on his left. They wanted to be near Christ. They wanted, they wanted those seats of authority. They didn't just want to be near him because they loved him. They wanted what came with him. They, they wanted that, that power. And so Jesus tells the, those who are supposedly in power, the elders of the people, the scribes, the chief priests, He tells them, I am the one who has the power of God. And so these things are unfolding. And so Jesus is telling these disciples here that the Son of Man, it is going to be through the death that He is going to accomplish this great power. That was something totally foreign to them. They just didn't get that. Now notice what it says. It says that this Son of Man, Jesus says that everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. So what we have to stop and say and ask ourselves is what was written by the prophets? Now, I'm just going to give you a few of these. And when I say few, I mean 14, okay? (laughs) But I will go through them quickly, very quickly. If we were to go through and study all of the prophecies, all of the things that were spoken of regarding Christ, we would be here a very long time. Because you have to understand the story of the Bible is the story about God redeeming His people. Jesus is written all over the place in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament. And so, let me just give you a few places concerning specifically the suffering and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Genesis 3.15, going back to the prophet of Moses who wrote here, we see that he speaks of the crushing of Satan. This is referred to uh, many theologians as the Proto-Evangelium, the very beginning, the very first reference to the Gospel. That from the seed of the woman, there would be one who would crush the head of the serpent. Genesis 3.15 says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Romans 16.20 shows us the, the verification of this and the blessing that the church receives of this, because it says the God of all peace will soon crush Satan under your feet, and that is because he has already crushed Satan under his foot. You see, Christ... Uh, though Satan may have thought, oh, I shall bruise his heel uh, at, at, the resur- uh, at the crucifixion, Christ would then come and crush his head by the resurrection. 
It's kind of like, you know, where you're watching this battle going on and you think that you have defeated the enemy, but he rises up and comes through the fire and the smoke of the the biggest missile that you could fire at him, and yet here he comes again. This time stronger, angrier, and more powerful to defeat the enemy. This is Christ coming through in the resurrection. Oh, He's dead. He's in the grave. Look at Him. They're trying to seal the tomb, right? They're putting the Roman guards in front to make sure that no one's going to be able to come and steal Jesus. And those Roman soldiers are nothing for the angels. The angels come, or the angel comes and They are struck with fear. The tomb is rolled away easily. The stone is rolled away easily. And Christ is raised victoriously going forth. And so from the very beginning, we have to understand it's about Christ and about redeeming His people. Psalm 2-7 speaks of the announcement of the Messiah, Christ to be His Son. Psalm 2-7, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are My Son. Today I have begotten You. Fulfilled in Matthew 3-17. Also spoken of in Acts 13-33 and Hebrews 1-5. The resurrection is spoken of in Psalm 16-10. David speaks of this in When he says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave, or hell, or let your Holy One see corruption. Fulfilled, of course, in Mark 16, 6-7, in the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that Christ would be forsaken by His Father shows forth this great mystery of what would happen, what happens... You have this the Trinity, and yet the Father forsakes the Son. Why does He forsake Him? He's not embarrassed of Him. It is because of the sin that He bore. When Psalm 22, 1, My God, my God, why have You forsaken Me? Why are You so far from saving Me from the words of My groaning spoken by Christ in Matthew 27, 46? Now, it's one thing for uh, someone to say, well, I'm going to fulfill this prophecy by simply saying it, by quoting something. But it's a whole different thing when you have outsiders doing things to you that you don't have really control over, and you see those things come to fruition, such as Psalm 22, 7-8, where it speaks of the mockery and the ridicule of Christ. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. You recall, these are the very things that they did as Jesus was on his way to the cross and the things that they said about him while he was on the cross. Psalm 22.16. By the way, if you want to go through and just take one psalm, there's a lot in Psalm 22. So if you want one psalm to kind of really get a lot of mileage out of, I just picked a couple from here. But in Psalm twenty-two, sixteen, Christ's hands and feet are pierced. Speaks of the dogs encompass me, a company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and feet, which may have originally had the intention of seeing the bite marks from the illusion of these dogs encompassing him. It would be the crucifixion that would give him the, the marks 
The piercing of His hands and feet fulfilled in John 20, 25-27. Which incidentally, at the time of Jesus' crucifixion or at the time of the writing of Psalm 22 when David writes this, crucifixion had not even been invented yet. So this, this would kind of be like Christopher Columbus talking about being strapped down to the electric chair. You're like, wait a minute. There was no electricity, you know. So you you see this idea. So so what would he? How would he have described it? Uh, Well, you know, uh, I've been shocked greatly. You know, you know, somebody from the 1400s. I've been shocked. You know, sitting down, being shocked. Well, what, what does that mean? And so here we see this, this understanding of this great, terrible thing, in which incidentally you're going to see he had to be turned over to the Gentiles because the Jews didn't crucify people. This was something that the Gentiles did. So the, the Jews would stone people. And they did try that, by the way. They tried to stone Jesus, didn't they? That didn't work. And so he couldn't be stoned because he had to fulfill the prophecy. So how are you going to get Jesus crucified? You've got to get him through the Roman court somehow. Well, all these things are orchestrated by the great hand of God. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen speaks of Christ's clothes that they were gambling for. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. It's one thing to be crucified. It's another thing for you to orchestrate what people are going to do with your clothes. You see, this is just a, there's a reason for this, but it is fulfilled in Matthew 27, 35 to 36. Further, none of Jesus' bones would be broken. Psalm 34.20 says He keeps all His bones. Not one of them is broken. You know this is fulfilled in John 19, 32, 33, and 36. They're going along. What are they doing? Because the next day was the Sabbath day. They're going through. They're breaking the legs of all of them to expedite the death so that they would they would die faster these criminals and jesus who are hanging there and they they were breaking but when they came to jesus they did not do that how how were these things done all of these things are being fulfilled psalm 69 21 christ would be given vinegar and gall to drink they gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink, of course, fulfilled by Jesus on the cross. Lots of fulfillment from Isaiah. Isaiah 50, verse 6. We're going to look at this a little bit in depth next week. Psalm 50, verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Matthew 26.67 fulfills this. There's so much in Isaiah 53 which is fulfilled. Uh, But let me just give this one. But He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with His wounds we are healed. So there are so many references in Isaiah 52, 53, Isaiah 50, and far further along. 
Daniel 9.26 also speaks of the, the 62 weeks. After the 62 weeks, the anointed one, Messiah, shall be cut off. And truly, this is the fulfillment, a, a time frame that is given. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7 speaks of the scattering of the disciples. Zechariah 13.7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. Certainly that occurs as Jesus is betrayed. The disciples said, we'll never leave you. We'll always be with you. There's nothing. And yet, when they take Him, they surely do scatter, do they not? They're fearful, and Jesus is left alone. And so when you consider this, when you look and see what will be accomplished, this was accomplished because it is the definite plan of God. This was not an accident. This was not a tragedy. This was God's definite plan. Acts 2, 22-23 speaks of this. He says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through Him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Here we see the greatness of God's sovereignty, yet man's responsibility. He does not say, well, this was part of the plan, and God ordained this, so you all are off the hook for what you did. He says, no, this was God's plan. And somehow God works and weaves these things together. Yes, this was God's plan, but you are still responsible. And so Jesus would indeed go down to Jerusalem on His own to give Himself over so that God's plan as found in the prophets would be totally and completely fulfilled. Now you're going to see what that plan was actually like. It wasn't as if Jesus went down and He was quickly killed. There was a process that unfolded. We already looked at There were seven different aspects that Jesus here in the Gospel of Luke records. Things that were going to be done to Him. Why were these things done to Him? We're going to see what some of these things mean. But for us this morning, I think there are at least three things that we can take away. There are a lot more things that we can take away from this. But there are at least three things that we can take away. The first thing that we can take away is that we can trust Holy Scripture. We, we can trust Holy Scripture. Okay, As Dale Ralph Davis says, you don't need to be embarrassed by the Old Testament. You don't need to be in, embarrassed by the Old Testament. The Old Testament speaks of the glories of Christ. Jesus wasn't embarrassed by the Old Testament. Jesus spoke the Old Testament. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament. The Old Testament is about Jesus. It's about Him. It's about His law. It is accurate and it is true. Jesus is full of grace and truth. Everything that you see in the Old Testament, it all speaks to Christ. And so it will all indeed come to pass. So you can trust Holy Scripture. You see, it doesn't 
change. As you're going to see at the end of verse 34, the disciples didn't understand these things. They were hidden from them. Okay? And, and what that means is they, didn't, they, they couldn't put all the pieces of the puzzle together yet. But when Jesus is resurrected and He goes to them and He speaks to them, it's, it, it's unfolded for them. They, they, they can see clearly now. And so, so it is with us now even. There are certain things we don't get, we don't understand. Why would God do this? But we're called just to trust God. Christ. Trust God in what He says. We don't understand why things are going about the way they are, but you can trust Him. As it says, what are we supposed to be doing about the Son of Man now? We are to be looking, lifting our heads, waiting for His coming. So we can trust Holy Scripture. It will be fulfilled. Actually, it must be fulfilled. Because you've got to think about it. If Holy Scripture is not fulfilled, then that makes God a liar. And God is not a liar. So though we in our small, finite minds might not understand all the inner workings of how everything is going about, we can trust Him. Second of all, we could recognize God's sovereign control. We, we need to recognize His sovereign control over all aspects of history. You see, He is present. He is, it's not as if God did this and then he, he took off. He's not on a break. He's not on a leisure. He is not Baal like what Elijah was saying. Oh, maybe he's off on a journey somewhere. Maybe he's napping somewhere. That is not God now. God is just as much in control sovereignly over history right now as he was then. Now, his plan here is grand. This is the height of redemptive history, the height really of all history, but yet he is no no less in control. He is present with us. He is present here with us. He is working all things, Ephesians says, after the counsel of His will. Everything. And so why He does certain things the way He does, I do not know. But I do know that He is far wiser and greater than I. And when you look and you, you look and see, how is it, just as the disciples were, you're, you're the Son of Man, right? So how is mocking you going to bring you glory? You're the Son of Man. How, is, how, is you, how are you dying going to bring about this cosmic rule over all the nations? That, that doesn't compute. And yet we see that it all does. See, we look back and we say, oh, this works out beautifully. This, this, is, this is incredible. They didn't get it. I do believe there will be a day when we will look back and we'll say, oh, now I get it. You know, just like I think David, I think David, when he went to heaven, he he was standing there and he said, oh, like I was writing all those things and a bunch of those things I thought was about me. It's, it's about Jesus Wow, that, that's amazing. I think we're going to be on the other side. We're going to say, oh, 
Now I get it. And we will do the same thing. We will just bow in wonder and in awe. Thirdly, and lastly, we can learn that Jesus is worth giving all to follow Him. You have to remember the connections and why Luke arranges his gospel the way he does. I know it's been a little while for us, and I know that there are these divisions in here, but go back. What was the prior thing that was given? Verses 18 through 30. It was the rich young ruler, or the rich ruler at least, and he thought that he was great. He thought that he obeyed the law. He thought that he had everything. Jesus tells him, go sell everything you have. And he says, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not going to follow you if that's what it means. And Peter then says, well, we've left our homes and followed you. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. He's saying, listen, it is worth it to follow me. It's worth it to follow me. It's going to be hard. It's going to be tough. As a matter of fact, Jesus can basically say, it's going to be so tough. There were prophecies written that said, for a little while, you're going to scatter. But you're going to come back. You're going to to get things back together. And then you're going to follow me so much so, you're going to be willing to all be martyred on account of me. And so Jesus here is telling them, it's worth it. It's worth it. I am the Son of Man. Everything is going just according to plan. And so when we see these things, we can place our faith and hope and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who has fulfilled all of these things so that we too might be able to receive many times more in this age and in the age to come eternal life. Do we not have the greatest privilege of all to know Christ to love Him, to walk in His ways. doesn't matter what is going on around us. To walk with Christ, to know Him, the great Son of Man. And we will give Him glory. Be encouraged. Lift your heads, for the Son of Man comes. Let us pray. Our God and our Father, we are grateful for who You are. Lord, we... We have plans and oftentimes our plans go terribly wrong they don't go the way that we thought we are disappointed disillusioned heartbroken frustrated and yet lord we know that for your greater plans for your incredible plans, they go perfectly. We thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who followed you, who obeyed you willingly to give his life for us, to die the death that we deserve, Lord. 
We thank you that he lived a perfect life. We thank you that, that our hope can be found in him and in him alone. And in him alone we can stand. So Lord, I pray that you will use this to encourage us, whatever we may be going through, whether we are going through a season of joy or whether we are going through a season of despair, whether we are facing new horizons and great joy in life, or whether we are facing the brink of death. Lord, may our hope continuously and always be found in Christ, the great Son of Man. We thank You, Lord, that You were obedient to death, even the death of the cross, which You took for us. Now, Lord, we pray that You will go before us, that we will truly, not just like You, but we will love You. We will seek to follow You in all the ways You desire us to go. We pray this in Christ's name. And now, may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who was and is and is to come, may His grace be upon you now. Amen. Lord bless you this day.